Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 87 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Lisa Shaver and we're talking about SIBO diets, food intolerances, celiac disease, gluten sensitivity and how you might get tested for all of those things. Now, we talk about a lot of testing, so you might like to get the transcription from today's episode, and you can get that absolutely free by signing up as a member of the Healthy Gut Podcast. Just head to thehealthygut.com forward slash podcast, and you'll be able to access all of the transcriptions from season three absolutely free. So enjoy today's episode with Dr. Lisa Shaver and I as we talk all things SIBO diets, food intolerances, and more. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, Dr. Lisa Shaver. It's great to have you back on the show. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for having me. I'm honored. My pleasure. And we have the great uh, joy of actually sitting face to face today. Most of the time I'm doing my podcast interviews virtually, but I'm here in Portland, Oregon after attending the SIBO Symposium and we get to do it in person. So yay for us. I know. I'm so excited. It's been so nice to see you in person. It's been a long time. It has been. Now, for those of you that haven't already heard my previous interview with Dr. Lisa Shaver, make sure you head to episode 30, which is in season one. And we talked all about celiac disease, which is a a real um, personal favorite topic of Dr. Lisa Shavers. Uh, We will be touching a little bit on gluten and why we should be checking for gluten today. But I thought we would start off with just talking around SIBO diets in general. Now, a question that I get asked all the time is, um, around the effectiveness of this of one of the SIBO diets as a form of treatment for SIBO. And I'd love for you to tell me, are these diets treating SIBO or are they just helping us to feel better? That's a great question. Uh, and I get that question all the time. So initially, so going back maybe eight years when we were first sort of fledgling uh, practitioners in the SIBO world, We thought diet was one of the treatments. Now, however, we use one of three treatments, herbal antibiotics, conventional pharmaceutical antibiotics, and elemental diet plus diet. So it is an addition to one of the three treatments. However, diet alone is not a treatment. We do not consider it a treatment. It can help symptomatically. So it can reduce bloating. It can reduce discomfort but it will not reduce the bacterial overgrowth or the archai overgrowth um, in and of itself. uh, So these low fermentable diets are um, meant to not feed the organisms. And I say organisms instead of bacteria because for hydrogen, it's bacteria, but for methane dominant, which is more associated with constipation, it is these organisms that are called archaea, which are not actually bacteria. So with these organisms, when we reduce certain types of foods, and that which are otherwise often healthy foods, um, then we can have less activity in these organisms, but they don't necessarily die. And one question that people ask me is, well, why do I have to follow a SIBO diet if it doesn't actually treat my SIBO? 
Exactly. Great question. So I use the SIBO diet as a tool. I use it as a tool between, between treatments. So um, one of the three treatments I use, whether it's herbal antibiotics, which is probably my preference along with the elemental diet, but I do use pharmaceutical antibiotics. So one of those treatments, and those treatments can last anywhere from two weeks to four to six weeks. Then uh, we're going to retest. So in order to keep those levels low, so with SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, we just want to get the overgrowth down to normal growth. We don't want to kill off our entire small intestinal microbiome. We just want to get them down to reasonable numbers. So we've effect, effectively done that through a treatment. They're lower now. We want to keep them low. And that's when I ask patients to be sort of goody two-shoes on a on one of the many diets that we have, and uh, we choose a diet together, each patient and I, to keep it low while we're testing so that it doesn't slowly rise back up to where we were before treatment. And that if we do that, we'll just be chasing our tail and we'll be on this never-ending vicious cycle. So I use it to maintain the low amount so I don't um, actively feed the organisms but maintain that low amount that we've achieved through treatment until we start a treatment again or until we deem um, that SIBO has been cleared and we go on to either optimize digestion or SIBO has cleared but there's still symptoms and we search elsewhere for why there's still symptoms. We are going to touch on what to do if there are still symptoms in a little bit. There are a couple of different diets that are generally followed by SIBO patients. Do you have a preference for one over the other? Other? Do you see that your patients do better, say, on the low FODMAP diet or the SIBO-specific uh, diet or biphasic diet? So, yeah, I, um, I haven't used the biphasic diet that much. Um, but I think I'm going to start using it more. I like, I like the theory of it. Um, I use low FODMAP diet a lot, qu quite, quite often. One, because, um, the support behind it and the research behind it is excellent. Um, and two, uh, there's so many resources that patients can have and access, um, so um, I use the IBS. I find it to be the least restrictive. And um, I do tell each patient, now this is, these are recommendations. This is not um, a strict mandate. These are recommendations. And low FODMAP, medium FODMAP, high FODMAP are research-based on sort of the chemical structure of the foods. However, each human body responds differently. So I have many patients who can eat several of the medium FODMAP and even some of the high FODMAP without symptoms, um, without symptom worsening. So I try to have and encourage my patients to eat as broad and as varied a diet as possible because that's fun and that's easy and that's enjoyable. And um, I try to keep the restricted foods to the, to the minimum. Um, so I use low FODMAP. However, I have used um, Dr. Pimentel's uh, low fermentation diet, previously known as the Cedars-Sinai diet. I have also used the GAPS diet, or gut and psychology syndrome diet, by um, Dr. Natasha Campbell McBride out of the UK. I use that more with people who have a lot of neurological symptoms because that's what the diet was originally used for. And I modify it a little bit. <clears throat> I've also used a specific carbohydrate diet. That's especially if my patients have inflammatory bowel disease and uh, SIBO. I use that. I use Dr. Allison C. Becker's SIBO-specific um, diet. Um, people like the graphics um, and... Um, that I use probably the least because I find it to be the most restrictive. And those are for the sickest of, of patients. Um, Norm Robillard has something called the fast track diet. I have not really explored that. Um, and then of course, Dr. Norala Jacoby's biphasic diet. And I like that. I think I'm going to be using that a little bit more. I like the theory of it, how you go through one phase and another phase. Um, so those are, those are the diets I use. Um, SIBO is not easy 
every person is different and responds differently. So I really try to gauge my recommendations based on patient preferences and their capabilities. If they are traveling a lot, uh, business meetings, have very little time, don't cook at home, I might choose um, the low fermentation diet. I think it's a broader, more uh, generous diet. Um, if patients are really great cooks and really dedicated, maybe one of the other ones is um, going to be uh, easier or more more interesting for the patient. Having done the SIBO biphasic diet myself, uh, I think that that diet works really well for people that, that like structure, that like lists, that like guidelines, kind of rules and regulations. I love lists. <laughs> I like to kind of have things really laid out and organised. I'm a very organised person. And so for me, it just made sense because I just I was in phase one and then I was in phase two and I ate these foods and then I ate those foods. And it was really clear and logical for me. And I, yeah, I exactly. really enjoyed that yeah exactly and I do have your cookbooks in my um, in my clinic both the family cookbook and the summer cookbook and so patients often ask about the biphasic and that's when I go into it and I say you know you can still use these recipes on almost any of these diets they're all relatively relatively similar SIBO friendly diets um, so and patients really I just have to give you kudos patients really appreciate not just eating a chicken breast and a few spears of asparagus and some white rice every night for dinner and that's not the intention of any of these diets whatsoever and so I love that you've created yummy food and recipes that patients can feel normal and just sort of invite friends over and have a meal and it's tasty well that was the intention when I wrote those books that people wouldn't feel so deprived uh, if diet isn't a treatment of SIBO and it's more around symptom mitigation and, and controlling the overgrowth or keeping it at bay once you've done a round of treatment, what happens if you don't follow a SIBO diet at all and you just eat the standard American or standard Australian diet? Right. So I have seen those patients too. Um and unfortunately, I feel that they are the chronic relapsers. Um, you know, they go and eat a bunch of pizza or pasta or, um, you know, any fruit that they desire in large quantities, especially with the standard American diet. And um, I find that their success rates are lower um, in general over time. And um, I want if I can, to get people feeling as best as they can, as fast as they can, and then for as long as I can. So that's why I have a long conversation about food. And food is not a problem. Food is a tool that we're using and that we're enjoying to help us feel better. Food should always serve us. Food shouldn't work against us in any human. Um, and we're just using this tool and this food guide to help us feel better. One thing you're particularly passionate about is testing for celiac disease and also being aware of the impact of gluten on the body. If somebody's beginning their treatment and they've been told by their doctor, here's a food, uh, a guideline, a SIBO diet that you need to follow and most of them, I think maybe the low fermentation diet by by Dr. Mark Pimentel has, you know, you can eat a bit of white bread mm -hmm. on that, but right. the others um, take gluten out. In, indeed. What should we be doing if we suspect gluten is a little bit of an issue? And I know this is a particular area of passion of, of yours. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope this podcast goes three hours. <laughs> 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 no, in, in a nutshell... So we know with celiac disease and non-celiac gluten sensitivity, any symptom, any symptom in the body, not, not exclusively in the digestive tract, can be caused from ingesting gluten. And so gluten is in uh, wheat, rye, and barley, uh, spelt and triticale, uh, farro, frica, emmer, einkorn, it's in a lot of grains that are now starting in Portland, where I'm based. You start seeing on menus, these ancient grains, these unusual grains. Chefs are starting to experiment more. So we have to, one, know what foods actually contain gluten and then what sort of accessory foods uh, contain gluten, uh, packaged foods, etc. 
So if a patient is going to start eliminating these from the diet and they start feeling better, it's possible that they have celiac disease or non-celiac gluten sensitivity and SIBO, and they feel better because they're not eating gluten. And once you feel better, you might not want to go back to eating gluten. So you might think, well, that's a good thing. It is a good thing. However, it is essential and imperative that all physicians test for celiac disease and non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And frankly, I want to put a shout out for wheat allergy, too. That's in the mix. Before we re re remove wheat and the other gluten-containing grains from the diet. So why? Um, I'll just name a couple of reasons. Celiac is a genetic, permanent autoimmune disease. Um, and I want to know if my patient has celiac disease because celiacs have a higher rate of cancers than other people. And if they remove gluten from their diet, Research shows that people who are diagnosed with celiac disease are more likely to stay on a gluten zero diet. People who are not, who just eat a gluten-free diet, tend to cheat or intentionally ingest. Or they're just not as careful and they're inadvertently um, uh, come into cross-contact with wheat. So as a physician, I want to be on the lookout for potential worrisome signs more so than the average patient. Also, celiacs have an increased risk of other diseases that I want to be on the lookout for. Celiac disease is genetic, so that means mom or dad have it, grandma or grandpa have it, brothers and sisters may have it, children, grandchildren may have it, cousins, aunts and uncles. All of those folks need to be tested. And if one person goes on a gluten-free diet and feels better, they're not going to tell their family, hey, look, I might know the reason for your migraines your funky rashes, for your joint pain, for your um, muscle pain, for your uh, weird swelling of your eye that happens every so often, for your uh, unmanageable menopausal symptoms, for your horrific PMS, for your prostatitis, for your palpitations. I mean, every system in the body can be linked to celiac disease and non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Also, celiacs um, have, have damage in their small intestine. And every time they eat gluten, their small intestinal lining gets damaged, 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 damaged. And that leads to malabsorption. So in SIBO, we can see low iron, low B12, low copper, low selenium. We can see all of these low numbers of vitamins and minerals that might be due to celiac disease. And we're doing a disservice by not diagnosing that celiac disease and then helping to heal that lining. In um, connection to that malabsorption, osteoporosis is also very common, so weak or brittle bones. And you can see that in 16-year-olds. You can see that in 20-year-olds. And usually that doesn't happen until way later in life. You know, after 70 years old is kind of when it goes up after 60, 70 years old. I see it in men, male celiacs, who have frequent broken bones. So for all of these reasons, we really need to be diagnosing celiac disease and finding these people and, um, and increasing the number of celiacs that we diagnose. We have an abysmal rate of only 15%, maybe 20% of all celiacs diagnosed so far in the United States. And that's because so many people are following a, a gluten-free or gl low-gluten diet um, and doing a disservice to themselves every time they in intentionally eat or eat at a restaurant where they know they could come into contact with wheat. So the person who's listening today and they've been given one of those SIBO diets as a handout and told by their doctor to follow this diet and they haven't been asked or uh, tested for celiac disease or a wheat allergy or intolerance, what should they do? That's a good question, hey? I've got loads more just like this coming up after this break. We'll be back in a moment. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So the person who's listening today and they've been given one of those SIBO diets as a handout and told by their doctor to follow this diet and they haven't been asked or uh, tested for celiac disease or a wheat allergy or intolerance, what should they do? Right. So they need to talk to their physician um, and determine when to be tested Um They don't need to stop a SIBO treatment in the middle and be tested, but they might. Um, So in order to be tested for um, celiac disease, a person needs to be eating a piece of bread or the equivalent, a handful of crackers or a flour tortilla or a cupcake or a muffin, you know, some sort of uh, gluten um, daily for four to eight weeks. There's one piece of research that says it's fine after two weeks, but I don't find that to be true. I find that the more the patient can tolerate a longer term of gluten ingestion, the better results and more likely we're going to actually catch celiac disease. Um, And ask their physician to run a full celiac panel. And there's, on most labs, they can't just check off celiac panel. They actually have to write it in. Um, because most labs don't offer a full and thorough celiac panel that's already created. Um, We can run, as physicians, a lipid panel. That's a cholesterol. So it's total cholesterol, HDL, LDL, um, triglycerides, et cetera. That's already created, and it's just a little checkbox on a lab form. As physicians, we have to actually write it in. So I'll tell you my five um, top uh, labs that I run. So... Uh, In an abbreviated form, it's TTG, both IgA and IgG, and then DGP, IgA and IgG, and then total IgA. Okay, so that was just a bunch of alphabet soup. What does that mean? Tissue transglutaminase, TTG, is um, an enzyme that is created in the lining of the small intestine once a celiac ingests gluten and there is actually damage occurring in the small intestine. That's why if somebody's on a gluten-free diet, the celiac test will be negative. We won't find anything because the damage isn't occurring. Uh, Well, what if they just eat gluten once? Well, maybe that damage is so faint we can't pick it up on a lab test. Maybe they're eating only a little bit of gluten for two weeks the antibodies not, might not rise far enough to be detected. That's why we need to have somebody eat the equivalent of one piece of bread to four pieces of bread that contain wheat, um, four weeks to eight weeks. Now, if somebody can't go that long and they're sick as a dog, then they take that lab form and they go in as long as they can endure, and then they just go in. Uh, and I don't mean... I'm bloating or my rash itches, I'm saying, wow, I have to leave work. Okay. Okay. We don't want to reduce the quality of life just for the sake of a lab test. Go and get the blood work. So tissue transglutaminase. And then there's two immune reactions, immunoglobulin A, that's the IgA, and immunoglobulin G, IgG. And so that's both of those, because some patients respond with IgA and others respond with IgG. So you can't just run one of those. The second DGP stands for deamidated gliadin peptide. And that's another step in the small intestinal lining of damage that is seen. And this marker goes out into the bloodstream. So once again, IgA and IgG. Then many celiacs have something called immunoglobulin deficiency or IgA deficiency. So we need to make sure that they're able to make IgA so that they're able to make these markers and they show up on the blood. So they might be having damage, but those IgA markers aren't showing up. That's why we do those five tests. 
Um, there are also some panels in the United States that offer more than those tests. That's just five markers. We know that there's different types of tissue transglutaminase, and those aren't available through conventional labs. So the one that's in conventional labs is for um, digestive symptoms, but there's also a tissue transglutaminase 3 and 6, and those are for skin issues and neurological issues. And right now, across the world, people with neurological problems are the ones that are most diagnosed with celiac disease these days and not gut issues. So neurological issues, you might think, well, I don't have a limp or I don't have a tick, but um, the brain also shows symptoms such as anxiety or depression or schizophrenia, and all of those are highly linked to celiac disease. Attention deficit disorder, um, oppositional defiant disorder in kids often is associated with celiac disease, as well as peripheral neuropathy and some of those frank nerves, you know, like weird feelings in your fingers and toes or um, odd sensations uh, on the body. So um, if we want to try to test more thoroughly, there are some uh, specialty tests, out-of-network tests, or functional medicine tests, however you want to call them, um, uh, that are offered. The tried-and-true uh, lab that's been around for a long time is called Cyrex, C-Y-R-E-X, and they have an array called wheat proteome and gluten sensitivity, and they test for those other transglutaminases. They also test for wheat germ. They also test for the complex between TTG and DGP. Um, they test, uh, oh gosh, about 15 or, or 20 tests in their panel. And so that's casting a broader net to try to catch celiacs and people with non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So that conventional lab that I mentioned, the TTG, the DGP, and the total IgA, does nothing to try to catch non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Those tests aren't available conventionally. But the research shows there are tests for it, and this lab has um, accumulated those. There's a new lab on the market, kind of a little upstart, called Vibrant, and Vibrant Wellness has something called a wheat zoomer. And they include the similar tests that Cyrex has, and they add these other proteins that aren't gluten. So new research shows that celiacs, we don't know about non-celiac gluten sensitivity, but celiacs respond negatively to these proteins that are not gluten. That rocked the world. That is amazing. So gluten makes up about 70% of protein in a wheat kernel or a wheat berry, but then there's other proteins. And some of these are on this test, this wheat somer, ferronins and purinins and ATI, amylase trypsin inhibitors, and such. And I am so happy. I have been able to cast this further net with this newer lab, Vibrant Wellness, on their wheat zoomer. And I've had people show up positive for these uh, other than gluten protein. So that's really exciting. Really exciting. So that was a very long answer to your very short question. But so interesting. Um, what about the genetic testing for celiac disease? I went to my primary care physician in Australia and I said, look, I haven't eaten gluten regularly for years now. Um, what can we do to see if I have celiac before I have to go and eat gluten every day? Because I know I will be ruined. <laughs> <laughs> to do that for eight weeks, I will be a mess by the end of it. I will have gained probably about 10 kilos, so 25 pounds, because I gain weight so rapidly with with gluten. I will probably have ended my relationship because my partner will be like, I cannot <laughs> oh, no. be near you because you are a nightmare. Oh, no. I will look pregnant. I'll just be, yeah, yeah, disgusting. So she said to me, well, why don't we run the um, genetic test and see first and foremost if there's a genetic pre predisposition is that good enough? Well, it's more information. You can't diagnose with a gene test. Um, some diseases out there you can, but you can't with this one because 30% of the worldwide population has the gene, but only 1% to maybe 3%. Some new research is showing it might be more common than we think, but uh, gold standard is still 1% of the population of the world has celiac disease. So there's 29% of us out there who don't have the celiac genes. I personally don't have the celiac genes, 
but I respond very negatively. I'm with you. Luckily, I tested myself over and over and over early on in my medical career thinking, what is the problem with gluten and how come I don't have celiac disease? And I would read, well, sometimes you just have to eat more. So I would eat more, feel worse, test myself, and it still didn't come up positive. Well, I don't have the genes. I don't have celiac disease. And that was before the um, non-celiac gluten sensitivity tests were available. So um, 30% of us have the gene, 1% have celiac disease. So it tells you within if you have the possibility of developing celiac disease, um, but it doesn't tell you if you have celiac disease. So um, most lab tests for the genetic markers, and so they're called HLA-DQ2 and HLA-DQ8. Those are the genetic markers. Um, they tell you yes or no, you have them. Uh, there are also some labs, some specialty labs, that patients can send in a sample and get sort of these subtypes of these genes that tell you if you're more likely to have celiac disease or less likely to have celiac disease, more likely to have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So what's interesting with non-celiac gluten sensitivity is 40% of people with non-celiac sensitivity have the celiac genes, whereas 30% of most people have the celiac genes. But non-celiac gluten sensitivity is not autoimmune. Damage does not occur in the gut. So it's a new disease. It was only discovered or, or announced in 2011. It's a brand new baby, baby, baby disease. So we don't really know that much about it. But we know some kind of weird things about it. Also, testing for non-celiac gluten sensitivity before going on a gluten-free diet is essential because we know people with non-celiac gluten sensitivity have a drastically higher rate of autoimmune diseases than the average population. So as a physician, I want to know if my patients have celiac disease, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, or wheat allergy before I put them on a gluten-free diet, any of these great healing diets that we have. Um, so wheat allergy. Wheat allergy doesn't necessarily have to show up as an asthma or hives or itchy throat or closing of the throat or difficulty breathing or anaphylaxis. It could show up as diarrhea, as gas or bloating. And so people say, oh, I feel so awful after I eat. It could be a true allergy. So we need to rule that out too. I did have uh, a patient uh, talking about true food allergies who um, would have diarrhea after um, typically lunch and dinner, but not breakfast. And we kind of found out she loved chicken and made chicken often. And it turned out she had a true allergy to chicken, whereas all the gastroenterologists were focused on Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And she'd been tested improperly for celiac disease, but someone did look. She'd been put on PPIs, which are acid inhibitor medications. She'd been put on all these medications, and it was a true food allergy to chicken. And she, quote, loved chicken. I eat chicken every day for lunch. I love my chicken salad sandwiches, and I must make chicken three times a week for dinner, and then we have leftovers. So she was eating her true allergy and having GI symptoms, so we need to rule that out too. Are there any other things that we should be looking for before we commence one of these SIBO diets? Um, given that these SIBO diets really do clean up the diet, we pull out a lot of mostly all processed food and often those common allergens or irritants like gluten, wheat, dairy, the sugar consumption drops a lot. And I know myself and many people feel significantly better when we go on our SIBO diet. And many of us don't really want to go back to eating that typical American or Australian diet. And so we may not want to consume something that might actually be an allergy or an intolerance for us. Other than gluten, is there anything else we should look for before we start? Well, lac lactose deficiency, which is really a lactase insufficiency, so we, we're not able to make the enzyme that breaks down the milk sugar, that's something that actually could worsen with SIBO or could be uh, aligned with um, other conditions that irritate the small intestinal lining. So that's something we could look at, but it could resolve after SIBO. Um, when I have patients who come to me and say, I think I have SIBO, I say, okay, let's look at your symptoms. But I also have a conversation of what else it could be. 
you know, we do have to rule out all sorts of other um, disease processes as well. It's not always SIBO. We need to make sure that SIBO is one of our options and that uh, we rule out others. So we know 60-80% of people with IBS have SIBO, and IBS is considered only a diagnosis once everything else has been excluded. So just I try to look back and make sure everything else has been excluded before I launch into um, the process of uh, breath testing. So I often also do a stool test on these patients, and a stool test will see what's going on in the colon. We could have parasites. We could have protozoa, which are parasite-ish organisms. Um, we could have um, bacteria that is pathogenic or bacteria that's just overgrown, that's normal but overgrown in the large intestine. We could have um, fungal overgrowth in the large intestine. We could have inflammation from another source. Um, we could have uh, malabsorption of fat, and that's a liver gallbladder issue causing the diarrhea. So I want to look at all of these. So I recommend that people get a really good um, stool panel as well as launching into ex um, exploring if SIBO is an issue. I think that's such an important point to make because I do see that either people are self-diagnosing or self-treating or going to their doctors and saying, I believe I've got SIBO and really guiding the conversation down the SIBO path and without looking more broadly. And as you say, SIBO is but one of many issues or factors that can be going on. And it's so important that we, we investigate fully. With regards to the SIBO patient that has done SIBO, yes, they had SIBO, they've done the SIBO diet, they've redone their SIBO breath test and the numbers have come back to say, you've cleared SIBO, but they still feel pretty crappy. They're still bloating, they're still reacting to foods, they feel miserable. They're saying, well, yeah, great, I've got rid of SIBO, but now what? what why, do I, why don't I feel like a new person? What do we do in this situation? Right. So for those patients, typically what I first look at is how is their digestive function? I hope that I have taught them how to eat consciously. So our digestive tract only works when we're in a state of rest and digest. So that's when we're calm and enjoying ourselves. Whereas if we're standing up and eating or driving and eating or walking and eating, our digestive tract pretty much turns off. Um, our digestive secretions, everywhere from the saliva to the stomach juices to um, gallbladder squishing out bile and the pancreas secreting our digestive enzymes and the insulin, and then the lining of the small intestine secreting more enzymes, that only works when we're at rest. If we're go, 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 do, 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 fast, 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 hurry, 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 or afraid or tense or listening to politics or news then we're not digesting. So I want to make sure those processes have all been thoroughly investigated. So I want to make sure they're making enough saliva. So we need to swallow saliva on a regular basis. The only way we can make saliva is if we're adequately hydrated. And dehydration is so common. Saliva goes down. Uh, we swallow food. Um, so the reason we have to swallow all day you ever thought about why do we swallow all day is all of us have a little bit of reflux. The stomach contents come up into the esophagus and we swallow to push it back down on a regular basis all day long. Only some of us, uh, the um, sort of rebellious chi, as we say in Chinese medicine, I'm also a Chinese medicine practitioner, that the stomach goes up, the stomach contents come up and it's too much for the downward energy to uh, overpower. So that's GERD or reflux or, or heartburn. So um, we swallow. If we have food in our mouth, it goes into our stomach. And then we hope that our stomach is making all our secretions to break food down into small little bits. If we don't have teeth, we don't have molars in our, in our stomach. And the stomach does churn. It has a bunch of different um, chemicals that breaks it down. So there's a mechanical and chemical breakdown. But if that's not working great, then we have large bits of undigested protein, and that can cause bloating, and bloating can cause distension, and distension can cause pain. 
and that can cause gas or burping, and enough gas just from undigested proteins can push up on the stomach, causing heartburn and burping, and so here we've cleared SIBO, and we still have some of our symptoms, and that's just from the function of the body not being adequately investigated and then addressed. So we have to look at all of those. We want to make sure the pancreatic output is appropriate, the liver gallbladder system is appropriate. So if those have all been addressed and layers of symptoms peel off and maybe there's some other symptoms that are there and the patient says, you know, I'm great between meals, I'm great when I wake up, but it's after I eat. Okay, if it's not SIBO, and we've done a digest, uh, we've done a stool panel, so we know it's not bacteria or parasites or viruses or uh, fungi. Then we have to look, maybe it is like a food issue. Maybe it's actually something in the food. And we can have healthy foods that cause issues. So that's when I start experimenting with um, either tests or different types of supplements or different types of diets. So I look into um, histamine, which is such a big problem with SIBO. Um, is there a histamine reaction? I look into sulfur. Is there a genetic pathway that is kind of glitching and not doing great, causing us not to be able to absorb uh, or process the sulfur naturally occurring in certain foods? I look at oxalates, which are also another natural um, ingredient in foods. Salicylates as well. Um, uh, lectins is a possibility. I think it's uh, not as big of an issue as uh, certain popular books have um, stated, but I have seen them rarely. I have seen them. They do exist. And then also just a true fructose intolerance. So um, those are some things I look at. And if we've gone through all of those, then I'll look for either true food allergies. So again, like with the wheat allergy, that's testing for IgE. So that's different than the IgA and IgG that I spoke about earlier. IgE is a true food allergy. Non-celiac gluten sensitivity is not a gluten allergy. It's a gluten sensitivity. Celiac disease is intolerance to gluten. So gluten intolerance technically means celiac disease. Gluten sensitivity means non-celiac gluten sensitivity. It's a wheat allergy, meaning allergic to wheat and other proteins in wheat. So I'll look at that, and then I'll also test for food sensitivities. And that's with, again, IgA and IgG. And there are panels where you can test for IgA, IgG, and IgE for um, grains, dairy, eggs and other meats, fish, fruits, vegetables, um, beans and legumes, and then sort of a miscellaneous category, which is like honey and sugar and cocoa, <laughs> chocolate. I never like to see that raised. Um, uh, brewer's yeast, baker's yeast, and those sorts of things. So it, it takes a third, I mean, there's so much to explore. And I'm sure I'm, I'm leaving some things out. But there are a lot of other reasons why we might not feel well by eating healthy foods. And I think for those that are listening, and myself included, it gives people the um, opportunity to go back to their practitioner and say, okay, you know, we've done part of this, but we haven't done this thorough investigation or, or maybe intuitively they may even sense, you know, when I sit down to eat, I don't give myself the time to eat. I don't give myself space to digest. I'm eating on the go or I'm dealing with my kids and I'm stressed after the day at the office and food is more about just getting it in and, and getting on with the, the next chapter of my day than sitting down and nourishing my body. And it was an area for myself that I had to do a lot of work on going from a, being a speed eater and a, an eater on the go to someone that's made mealtimes a really important part of my day and allowing digestion to happen. And that made a huge difference to my symptoms. Absolutely. Good for you. That's exactly what we have to do is evaluate what are our priorities. And we won't exist without food. We can't. We can't. No. And food is lovely. And food it, is delicious. <laughs> <laughs> so given that the SIBO diets aren't a treatment of SIBO, they're more of a supportive mechanism to help calm initial symptoms and also to help keep at bay the overgrowth. 
once treatment has concluded. What's the outlook looking like? People ask me quite frequently, will I go back to the way I used to eat or, you know, inverted commas, a normal diet? What do you see clinically with your patients? What happens with them after they've gone through treatment? Right. So once again, every every person is different and I do have to address that. But I can say what we're looking for is to stay on a SIBO-friendly food plan after treatment, after the gases have cleared for three months, maybe a little bit more. Some people need six months. And in the meantime, we're looking to optimize all the digestive processes and and address other health issues. Um, You know, thyroid issues can affect our gut. Uh, Blood sugar issues can affect our gut. Autoimmune diseases can affect our gut. You know, so just exploring all of those once SIBO is gone. Um, And Uh, Then at about that three-month mark, and it depends, you know, if a patient wants to go on vacation in two months and they won't have access to the type of food they're eating, we might try to, like, really be more assertive slash aggressive with treatments and try to get them ready so that they can enjoy themselves. Um, But then we start uh, implementing a very conscientious addition of foods, whether that's a higher FODMAP or foods in the, quote, illegal category in SCD, which I think is a very damaging and triggering word and very confusing for people. But um, so those foods that are um, not as advised when we're trying to be goody two-shoes, but are now part of the options of a regular diet. So uh, I'd send patients away for about two months saying, I want you to add a small, like a mouthful, and wait a day or two. And then if that works, you can go ahead and have two mouthfuls or one-fourth cup, and we just try to increase it. These are new signals the body hasn't heard for a while. And um, I want people to be able to eat a big and varied diet. And, um, you know, once people know, oh, I'm actually doing pretty well, then they could probably introduce a new food almost every day. We get to that point. Um, But I want them to be careful you know, track them. And there's a lot of apps that are great for tracking these. Um, or they have a little notebook that they carry around. Um, or even just in the notes of your smartphone, just adding, just like jotting it down. So, um, yeah, that's what I do is sort of slow and steady. I call it um, low and slow. And um, I've had patients uh, go from, you know, no asparagus to whole plate of asparagus. And that's pretty disastrous usually. So uh, asparagus being a low FODMAP and usually being tolerated. Um, and that's also, you know, quantity. Quantity is huge. So, and the, that's what I like about the FODMAP diet is they talk about quantity. You can eat a big pile of green beans, but you can should probably limit your Brussels sprouts to whatever it is, three, four, five, or your asparagus spears to three, four, or something like that. So um, that helps patients. And they're like, yay, I can eat six asparagus spears. And yay, I can eat eight Brussels sprouts. And I made, you know, a cream of asparagus soup and I was able to have a big bowl. And those are just delightful because food is delightful and it should be enjoyed. And fear and anxiety around food is something we don't want to have that's not enjoyable at all. It's not. And the food reintroduction phase can be challenging because you're eating foods you haven't eaten for a while. It can be triggering because you can have a psychological and emotional attachment or fear around the food. But the great thing is, as you get, when you start low and slow and start with small quantities, it's amazing how quickly in relative terms you can often get up to a full serve of something. Mm-hmm. And just because that first attempt is only a mouthful or a tablespoon or, you know, an eighth of a cup, it doesn't mean you'll be stuck at that quantity forever. No. I agree. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Dr. Lisa Shaver, thank you so much for coming on to the Healthy Gut Podcast and coming back onto the show and talking to us about SIBO diets and and really helping to clarify that point around that SIBO diets aren't a treatment, but they're really a supportive mechanism to helping people feel better. And they're not a lifelong sentence. They're a short, relatively short-term um, supportive option through treatment to help people feel well. And I think that's really great news that we don't have to be on these super restricted diets for the rest of our lives. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. Um, 
Yeah, it's I, I do see some patients who have been on a restrictive diet for years, and that's just not fair. That's not fair to them and their families and their friends. Yeah. And it's not fun. And or it's delicious. Not fun or delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Lisa Shaver, thanks so much for coming on the show. If people would like to connect with you, how is how can they? Yeah, so my website is www.bewelleveryday. B-E-W-E-L every day. Um, my office is in downtown Portland, Oregon. I do phone consults. Um, and for people international, I can do Skype. I have done Skype in the past, um, and I'm happy to do that. Um, I set aside uh, one morning uh, to do my phone consults because so many people need support. And um, I also have a variety of lectures if they want to look more into celiac disease or forward information to their practitioners. They can find those lectures as well online. Wonderful. And all of those links are in the show notes from today's show. So thanks so much for coming onto the Healthy Gut Podcast. You're very welcome. Absolutely my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed episode 87 of the Healthy Gut Podcast with Dr. Lisa Shaver. She is so knowledgeable when it comes to all things gluten. Uh, If you'd like the transcription from today's show, don't forget to head to thehealthygut.com forward slash podcast and you can sign up as a member to receive all of the transcriptions from season three. And could I ask a huge favor that you go and write a review and leave a rating for the Healthy Gut Podcast so people know it's back on the air, uh, that we can try and rise up the ranks of of, uh, popular shows and that people know that this is a great thing to listen to when you've got SIBO and gut health issues. I look forward to bringing you our episode next week all around fertility and SIBO. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.com forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Red Lemon Productions for the production and original music score of this podcast. To find out more about their services, head to redlemonproductions.com. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.